All right, would you please take your Bible and open to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to finish chapter 4 this morning. We're looking at the title, A Spiritual Father. We'll be tackling 1 Corinthians 4, verses 14 through 21. I'm going to read the text, the entire text for us, and then we'll come back and break it down. 1 Corinthians 4, 14. The Apostle Paul writes, I do not write these things to shame you, 1 Corinthians 4.14, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, verse 15, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I became your father through the gospel. I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me, 17. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you if the Lord wills. And I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love and a spirit of gentleness. Father, may you write your word on our hearts and may we have open hearts to be good soil for the implanted seed of the word of God, which is able to bear abundant fruit if we are receptive and if we intend on obeying. And Lord, that's really the truth of the matter is that the word of God does go out, but the question is how will we respond to it? This particular section is a challenging one, but Paul softens his tone and really takes on a fatherly tone, which we always need to remember that you are our father. And as much as we get exhorted and sometimes warned in scripture, it is because you love us. Any good parent spends a good amount of parenting warning their children, trying to protect them from things that they cannot always see or even understand. And so, Father, help us. Because we need to hear your voice, not the voice of a man, but the word of God. So I want to get out of your way, and I pray that your people, including myself, would be open and receptive to what you have to say, what the Spirit would say to this church body. May you be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. I'm sure you probably noticed, maybe this is personal for you, I think it would be for all of us, that moderns don't particularly like authority. It seems like respect for authority is waning in our culture. One day I went to a golf course and uh, I was at the counter and I had heard that the golf course gave discounts for police officers and firemen. So I came behind this conversation and slipped in the fact that I was a pastor hoping for a discount. (laughs) To which the man at the counter replied, oh, you're a pastor? No, we charge you guys more. And all God's people said, ouch, (laughs) Pastor Michael. It seems like we live in that type of environment where, you know, offices and professions that we used to respect have lost some respect. The question is why. I think public school teachers could tell you the same. I think, you know, those who are in authority positions in different contexts would say the same. Maybe every generation, as we get a little bit older, you know, decries the same kinds of things. You know, oh, the young people have lost respect, you know. 
And maybe that sounds like an old person's thing to say. But it does seem like it is a prevalent thing. And maybe even for our veterans today, it seems like, you know, maybe there's not as many thank yous and respect as we used to see. C.S. Lewis was speaking of his pre-conversion life. He said these words, But of course, what mattered most of all, he was not a Christian, was my deep-seated hatred of authority, my monstrous individualism, my lawlessness. No word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. But Christianity placed at the center uh, placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. If its picture were true, then no sort of treaty with reality could ever be possible. There was no region, even in the innermost depths of one's soul, nay, there least of all, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice, no admittance. And that was what I wanted. Some area, however, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine alone. Stay out. You have no business here. And in the modern vernacular, maybe you've heard this before, who do they think they are to speak into my life about areas where that's my decision, right? And in the radical individualism in the West, where we really define everything by our individual rights and what's in it for me and what I want from my life and how I feel about things, the idea of authority, you know, really is on the back burner. And Paul is going to use an image of a father here. In fact, he calls himself a spiritual father. He birthed them in verse 15. He will tell them in verse 16 to imitate him. And then he warns of the possibility of discipline in verse 21. And so we can all hear the objections now. Who does Paul think he is? Even in some schools of theology now, people are beginning to question Paul's, you know, is he really in touch with reality in these areas of life? Like we know more than the Apostle Paul who was inspired by the Spirit to write two-thirds of the New Testament letters. But that's kind of how it is now. There, there are people who are even saying, well, maybe Paul was wrong about this. Maybe he didn't really understand the issues. Oh, I think he understood very well. The question is whether we want to hear what the Bible has to say. Now, good authority is the ability, ability to influence for good. And we all know that when man gets power, he can abuse power. So people have been turned off to authority because they've seen abuses of power or what we might call authoritarianism. And when that happens, of course, authority gets very ugly. Authoritarianism is enforcing strict obedience to the authority at the expense of personal freedom. That's not what our culture is about. Our culture is about celebrating freedom, but we all realize that we need some level of authority or we're going to have anarchy in our world, right? We need some level of authority, or otherwise it's going to be chaos. And since it is a Veterans Day, I think veterans very much understand, those who have served in the military, what authority is about. And respect for authority, that's really something that's grilled into you as you serve. And so, good authority is a person who wants your best. If you have a good boss, if you have a good leader, if you have a good spiritual mentor, 
They're in your life for your good. They will tell you the truth because they believe that it will help protect you and even further your development as a person. That's what you want to look for in good authority. They don't want to rob you of your freedoms. They don't want to take away you know, the goodness of your life in terms of it being abundant, but they want to protect you and help you get better. And so we ask questions like, well, is there authority that's worthy to be followed? Well, God has, a cre- has created authority structures, really, throughout the scriptures we can see it. God created the family, he created government, and he created the church. Let me show you just three quick scriptures. Go to Romans, just one book back. This is Romans 13. This is what our responsibility is to these three spheres of family, government, and church. Here's what it says. Romans 13, 1 says, Let every person be in subject- subjection to the governing authorities. Romans 13, 1. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Skip down to verse 3, Romans 13. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, Ephesians is a little bit to your right. You have to pass up First and Second Corinthians. Go to Ephesians chapter 6. This is the family topic, another sphere that God has established. And here's a favorite verse for parents to quote to their children. It's Ephesians 6.1, and here's what it says. Children, Ephesians 6.1, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise. Ephesians 6.3, that it may be well with you. Look at the benefit. And that you may live long on the earth. Now it does say that fathers are not to provoke their children to anger, but to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And finally, a little bit more to your right is Hebrews 13. This is the church now. We've looked at government. We just looked at the family. Let's look at the church, these these three spheres of authority that God has given. This is Hebrews 13. Look at verse 17. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders. This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. I I quote it constantly. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they... This is spiritual leadership now. Keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And then he adds, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And so back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Even though we dislike discipline and we don't like rebuke probably most of the time, and maybe we even buck any authority that tries to admonish and warn us. And I'm reading from a wonderful commentary I came across on this subject. The writer says, here is the ironic truth about authority. We like authority. You guys remember the song, Everybody Wants to Rule the World? Everybody. Uh, Never mind. (laughs) We like authority, he goes on to say, but only when we are wielding it. We are fine with authority when we are in control. But when we are not in control, we feel as though we are being controlled. The problem with the human heart is that it wants to play God. Everyone wants to sit on the throne of his own life calling the shots, 
judging those who stand before him, whether a passerby or a family member, and ensuring that there are no legitimate threats to the kingdom of self. It's not true that we don't like authority, but we only love authority as long as it is ours. And this is exactly why we're suspicious of authority on the whole. Human beings use and abuse the authority given to them for their own selfish desires, close quote. Oh, we like authority as long as we're dishing it out. The moment that we get called on something, it's not as comfortable, is it? But he says, but deep down we know we need good, healthy authority. We desperately desire, all of us, purpose, direction, and even accountability. In fact, many of us look back on our lives, and for those of you who, you know, maybe you're middle age or beyond, you can look back at seasons of your life, how many of you can resonate with this, and wish that there was some authority in your life who would have held your feet a little closer to the fire. Anybody? Anybody have regrets and look back and say, man, I wish someone would have been a little bit more in my face, a little bit more strict, maybe not all of you, but some of you. Uh, a little bit more saying, don't do that, because if you do that, here's what's going to happen. Now, we do know that our children, especially perhaps teenagers, you know, they, they chafe at some of that. They, they don't like it. But what we're trying to do as parents is save them pain, chaos, and regret. Now, I do know as I talk about a father figure, right, a lot of us have daddy issues, right? We have issues with our fathers. In fact, uh, there's a huge percentage, what is it, 40 plus percent, who are now being born out of wedlock. They are being born into broken situations. So that it's like out of the gate, they, they have you know, this disadvantage. And even those of us who had a father perhaps present, or at least you know, reachable geographically, uh, speaking, or even in the home, sometimes had a bad experience. And so we have these daddy issues. So even when Paul says, you know, I became your father through the gospel, or we hear about Father God. I, I was watching a program um, that was talking about people who were coming out of sexual brokenness, and, and a woman had some issues with her father. So she said, in essence, I'm, I'm cool with Jesus, but I have a problem with God the Father. Because her view of a father was quite negative. And I, and I suppose we could all understand that. My own upbringing is in that category. Uh, my father left when I was four. I never saw him again. I found out that he died through an internet ancestry website. He called me one time on the phone in 30 plus years only to say, I'm going to come visit because he thought he had had a heart attack. And then when it was a false alarm, he didn't show up. That's my story. But when I started reading scriptures about God as the father of the fatherless and the defender of widows, I made a decision that I wanted my life to be different. I didn't want my boys to grow up in a broken home. So the negative actually motivated me to be the right kind of father. And I take fathering as a great privilege. And I wanted to be, I knew I wasn't going to be a perfect parent, but I wanted to be a present parent. I wanted to, to have an impact, and I knew that my impact on my boys would be significant when Shane, who was up here leading worship, was little, and he would dress like me, and uh, he would put on a tie and act like he was taking a briefcase to work, 
And I was the drummer on the worship team for many years. Some of you don't know this, but years ago, Pastor Michael was the drummer on the worship team. It is true. Now they've far surpassed me. But anyway, but he put out pots and pans in the living room, and he would beat on them and act like he was the drummer on the worship team, and then he'd pretend like he'd go, he was going off to work. And now I'm going to go. And he, this is what kids do, right? They, they copy their parents. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, look, the church's business is really about spiritual reproduction. It's really about us trying to guide others who are getting saved and growing in the Lord. We're trying to guide them. So when Paul, the Apostle Paul speaks sarcastically early in chapter 4 and you know, basically takes them to task, he's doing so in the role of a spiritual parent. And some of us who have grown up in a household where maybe our parents were on us a lot, we get to the point where we're like, I know, I know, I know. And your parents are famous for saying, no, you don't know. You think you know. <laughs> My mom, every time I would leave the house, she would say these words, be careful, Michael. And then it would be, be careful in your daily activities. Be careful. Parents are always saying, be careful. You're like, I know, Mom, I know. No, you don't know. <laughs> I'm going to be. Parents are in the reminding business, aren't they? And then we get older and we realize how much we need the reminders. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.14, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now we get the motivation. If there's somebody that's on you in your life, just know their motivation is, in all likelihood, love. I had a coach, I was playing football in high school, and he was constantly on me. And I only played one year of football because I was really a baseball player. But I even made this incredible hit. I, I remember this distinctly in my memory. I, I hit this guy, I was playing linebacker, and I hit him solid, and he went down. And my coach critiqued the hit. You were on the wrong side, Lance. You gotta hit him on the right side. You gotta drive him back towards the line, not away from the line. And I was like, what am I gonna do to please this guy? And then I found out later, and I think he even told me, he goes, look, I wouldn't bother with you or ride you if I didn't care, I think you can be a great player, but here's what needs to happen. See, this is the way it is. He says, I don't want to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. NIV, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Now, is there a place of shame in the Christian life? Here's what I would say. I'd say we don't want to shame people just to shame them. If your goal is just to shame them, like shame, shame, shame on you, right? Just wallow in your shame for the next 10 years. That's not what we should be doing. But shame does have a place in the life of the believer. In fact, go over to chapter 6, look at verse 5. Paul says, I say this, 6, 5 to what? To your shame, <laughs> And there, they were suing each other in secular law courts. In the previous chapter, there was an egregious sexual sin that wasn't even practiced by unbelievers. I want you to turn to an Old Testament scripture, Jeremiah 6, for a second. This is what Jeremiah says. And of course, Jeremiah was a weeping prophet, and he had to watch a lot of ugly stuff go down in his culture. Jeremiah 6. Um, look at verse 15. Here's 
Here's what God says through the prophet to his people. Jeremiah 6, 15. He says, were they ashamed, 6.15, because of the abomination they have done? They were not even ashamed at all. They did not even know, Jeremiah 6.15, how to blush. Therefore, they fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. And then this exhortation, thus says the Lord, stand by the ways, see and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and you shall find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So Paul says, look, I don't want to shame you. My goal is not just to say these words to shame you, but to warn you. And sometimes in warning, you know, we feel some shame. Genesis 39 when Potiphar's wife was tempting Joseph to sleep with her, he said, there's no one greater in this house, 39.9 of Genesis, just write it down. He, he has withheld nothing from me, your husband, except you, because you're, you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? In Daniel 9.7, when Daniel's praying for his people to be restored, he says, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. 1 John 2.28 says we don't want to shrink back in shame at his coming. So there's a legitimate place for shame, especially if it drives us back to God and to righteousness. I'm not writing these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. If you are feeling the tug of God lately, if you're in a situation where you are doing something that you have no business doing, you are consistently playing with fire, and you have God tugging at you, pricking you, convicting you, be of good cheer. Because if he wasn't, I would be worried. If he wasn't convicting me when I'm, you know, doing things that I shouldn't be doing as a believer, I would be worried. And so when we get the conviction of the Holy Spirit, is God just simply saying, don't do that. That's not good for you. That's not who you are. I'm warning you, said Paul. That means to admonish you, to put into the mind, to exhort. It's criticism in love is the Greek word here for admonish. It's the idea, admonishing is loving discipline. It's always protective, corrective, and restorative. Might want to write that down. Admonishing is always protective, corrective, but restorative. That is, any discipline that we would do, anytime we would say to somebody, hey, the train's coming, look out, or the car's coming, stop at the curb, don't go there, we, our goal would be what? To protect, to restore. The goal of church discipline in Matthew 18 is restoration. It's not just to leave someone just to make somebody feel bad. Oh, don't do that. Oh, yeah, you're just terrible. To shame them. That's not the point. The point is to speak the truth in love, to bring a person back to the place of restoration. And so we need to know that even when God's tugging at us or 
We have a friend who says to us, what are you doing? See, we have a father who loves us. And Paul is a spiritual father. In Hebrew, the word for love is ahav, and it means the father revealed. Never was his heart more revealed than in the story of the prodigal. And if God is, uh, maybe you've, uh, there were times in my life when I felt like Christians were surrounding me. Anybody? <laughs> it's like, I, I just, everywhere I turned, I was meeting a Christian who was speaking into my life. That's a sign that God loves you, and he's trying to bring you back to a place of walking strong with him. Look at verse 15, for, 1 Corinthians 4, 15, for if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father, notice, through the gospel. See the word tutor there? That's pedagogue. That's, in the ancient world, a pedagogue was a servant of a master who watched over a boy, really from the time he left the house, he couldn't leave without the pedagogue. And the pedagogue would walk him to school and try to keep him out of trouble. How many of you wish you had a pedagogue when you were younger, right? And, in, and they, they found on Greek vases, they found in archaeological digs, the uh, pedagogue pictured as a kind of a weird-looking person who carried a stick around and was always, you know, trying to beat you into submission, if you will. Trying to protect you from doing the wrong thing. So you could have many disciplinarians who would berate you with shame, shaming tactics, but you only have one father, says Paul. I'm your father in the gospel. I came to Corinth, I preached, you got saved, and this is who I am. You may have many people who become your pedagogues or try to guide you, but you only have one father. Paul's saying, I'm the founder of the church, so he's not trying to pull rank here, but he's just saying, it would be good if you listened to me since you became a Christian through my ministry. And so then Paul says something that a lot of people think is a bit boastful. I, I think not. 16, he says, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. I wrote in my notes, could I say that? Could I say to someone, just imitate my Christian life. Follow me around for a week. <laughs> Some of you are going, no, no. Maybe a couple hours on a Sunday, but not all week. What would it look like if you said to someone, just imitate me, just follow me around for the next week. The, the week to come, watch me as I study my Bible and pray. Share my faith. Go to different Bible studies. Pour into the lives of other people. Does that frighten you, that concept? Just imitate me. Some of you who have done some coaching, you know that one of the things that you do with players is you show them. So you might be coaching a football team and you'll show them a proper stance. You might be trying to teach a golf swing and you could... I, I had a guy trying to teach me how to swing a golf club, and he was unsuccessful. <laughs> but anyway, he was left-handed, and I'm right-handed. We stood opposite each other, and he was showing me how to fix some problems in my golf swing. I coached a lot of baseball, and I would show the kids how to get down and, you know, kind of get their glove down. And we would say, now make the alligator mouth. Do the alligator to the ball. Get coming the alligator mouth. And they would say, alligator, Coach Michael, alligator. Yeah, do the alligator, man. See, coaches would naturally say, watch me, imitate me. Do you, do you have some people in your life who are imitating you, watching you? Oh, they do, for good or for ill. 
little kids are famous for uh, saying stuff in the middle of a store or something that you said at home and they repeat it. <laughs> no, 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 don't say that in public. Why not, Daddy? You said it. <laughs> a man and his young son were climbing a mountain. They came to a place where the climbing was difficult and even dangerous. The father stopped to consider which way he should go. He heard his boy behind him saying, Choose a good path, Dad. I'm coming right behind you. Children have a way of imitating their parents, either for good or for ill. Researchers tell us that teenagers learn to drink at home and not from their peers. But my guess is that other bad habits happen the same way. Sometimes you hear the mouth of a little kid and you're like, where did they get that? It's usually not hard to figure out. Unlike our modern Western culture, however, in every other pre-industrial culture and many non-Western cultures today, it's expected for a child to imitate the father in the sense that the child would essentially adopt the father's vocation. So for instance, says one writer, if the father were a baker, the child would be a baker. If the father were a sheep herder, the child would become a sheep herder. So a much stronger authoritative picture is being communicated by this analogy. Paul is saying, follow me as I follow Christ, which he will say later. In Hebrews 13, 7, it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. There's such a thing as, we might say, a holy copycat. When we follow our Father, we are doing the right thing. This is a conclusion of an earlier thing that I quoted, but it's this. He says, when we accept legitimate authority, we can stop playing God. We are free to give up the burden of both chasing and running from authority. Once we stop playing God, we can start playing God in the proper sense. We get to be imitators of Christ, seeking to cultivate culture and help humanity flourish, close quote. You get the point? Once we stop playing God in the sense that we want to control everything, we can start imitating our Father. We can become what we were meant to be. That's what God wants for you. He wants you to have an abundant life to become what you were meant to be. And so for this reason, Paul says, I've sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child, 17, in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways. It would seem that Paul had already dispatched him, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul had Timothy, a wonderful protege in the faith, and he could send Timothy and know that Timothy would represent him well. Now, some have become arrogant, verse 18, that is in the Corinthian church, as though I were not coming to you. Some were, were piously defiant. He won't visit our city again. Paul's all talk. He's not coming back here. Oh, he came once, <laughs> and he's coming again. Daddy is coming home soon. Better make sure you made your bed. <laughs> Better make sure things are in order in your room. I love the story of the mother who had a particular trying day with her young son. Finally, she flung up her hands and shouted, All right, Billy, do anything you darn well please. Now let me see you disobey that one. <laughs> do anything you want. Yes, we have to balance love and discipline, don't we? 
as parents, as spiritual parents, can I ask you, do you have any spiritual children right now? Can I ask you maybe a penetrating question? When's the last time you led someone to Christ? And who are you discipling right now? Every healthy church should have spiritual parents and spiritual babies. Amen? If our church growth is all about transfer from other churches, and we're not winning people to the Lord and discipling them, then we're missing a big part of what the church should be doing. I'm very excited about our evangelism team because they report consistently seven to ten people getting saved every week at the Tyler Mall, at the crossings, at the library, in the neighborhoods. I'm excited about our missionaries who are out on the front lines. I'm excited about those of you who go into the prisons and those of you who are sharing with family and sharing at your school. This is what we should be doing. And so Paul says, but I will come to you soon for those of you who think I won't. And soon could be relative because he does say other, in other places he's going to wait, I think, till after Pentecost. But Paul always says, if the Lord wills, I, I'll come and I'll find out, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. See the word arrogant there? That is fusiao in Greek, and it means to blow up or to swell up the head. Some people were so puffed up in their arrogance, they couldn't fit through the door anymore. You know some people like that? People like that, it's not hard to burst their bubble. Just one little pinprick. <laughs> now the opponents were accusing Paul of all, uh, all kinds of things. Oh, he has no power. He's not very impressive looking. He, he's really nothing. Paul said, well, they talk a good game. But when I get into town, we'll find out what kind of power they have. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, verse 20, but in what? In dunamis power. It's not if someone's funny or a good communicator. It's whether or not the word of God has been embedded into our soul with a sense of the power of the Spirit. It's not whether we've been entertained or satisfied, or pleased. It's whether or not the power of God has gone from the Word of God into my life to bring transformation to who I am, to my family, to my spheres of influence, for the glory of God. That's the question that we're wrestling with. Not a form of godliness, but those who deny the power thereof, but the question of power, the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, Spurgeon and others said, if the Holy Spirit was taken out of the church, I wonder if anybody would notice. It's a good question. Because in some ways, with humanism and man's programs, we have decided that maybe we don't even need the power of the Holy Spirit. I beg to differ. Because you can have something that's numerically successful, but is empty and bankrupt. So Paul says, we'll find out. We'll find out if they talk a good game or if they actually have power. Reading from my notes, Paul says, Paul's concerned about the kingdom of God. What is all of this doing for the kingdom of God? This is a good question to ask in churches. Paul would say, I'm willing to live in what they perceive as weakness if the kingdom of God is extended. The power of the Spirit works through weakness. People know what they ought to do. 
The trouble is that knowing the good, they often do the evil. They need God's power. I need God's power to enable me to do things that befit his kingdom. There's probably, says one writer, an intentional contrast with the claims of the Corinthians. But Paul says, look, this is about the kingdom. And so he closes. 21. What do you desire? Shall I come with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? The question is not whether Paul will come, but how he will come. How many of you remember this? Just wait until your father gets home. <laughs> As a little kid, whoa, whoa, just wait. Or maybe some of you husbands have received this phone call from your wife. Get home now. <laughs> Why? Why, dear? Because these children need to be destroyed by you. <laughs> Buy a rod on your way home. One with jagged edges, preferably. <laughs> because if you don't come home in the next half an hour, I am heading for the hills. And good luck to you and to them. Right? That's when you know. you got to tell your boss, can I have an extended lunch today? Why? Well, my wife's not in a good place. And I'm going to go and beat my children. <laughs> sure, take as much time as you need. <laughs> have you ever looked at, at a child in a moment of discipline and said something like this? Okay, son, daughter. Which way would you like this to go? Would you like the rod of correction applied to the seat of understanding? <laughs> or <laughs> could we just have you own what happened here? Take a little responsibility. Stop blaming your six-month-old brother. <laughs> he did it. He unscrewed the light bulb. But he's six months old, he can't even move from the thing. I know, but he still did it. It was a miracle. He floated out of it. <laughs> See, I do believe in miracles, Dad. I'm listening in Sunday school. The miracle is sometimes when a child is honest, right? And they just say, okay, Dad, here's what happened. Yes, we were playing football in the living room again. <laughs> yes, I threw the pass that broke the light. That... What do you do then? I'm going to beat you anyway. <laughs> no, you kind of just say, okay. Well, clean it up and let's move on. Right? See, a lot of times, if not every time, we can decide which way it goes with God. Right? If we discipline ourselves, we won't be discipline. It's not like God just enjoys that part, but he knows if he needs to discipline us, it will, be, it will yield something. But Paul said, I'd rather come if Paul had his, if you had your choice, verse 21, what would you want to do? Let's say that you're the spiritual dad. What would you want to do? You'd want to come with love. You're the people that, you planted a church in a city, you want them to flourish. You want them to be blessed, but you're willing to warn and protect them for the sake of the kingdom. And I think that's the balance that we find in the text before us. Father, thank you for your word. It's a lamp to my feet, a light 
to my path. Thank you that I have a spiritual father. Thank you that, God, you reached down when I was broken, without hope, without God in my life. And you said, Michael, I love you. And even in all the brokenness that you've experienced and the mistakes that you've made, I have always loved you. Now, dear one, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, can you hear those words for yourself? God so loved you that he sent his son. The ultimate, ultimate authority of the universe, Jesus, who came in human flesh, gave up his rights at the cross put aside the prerogatives of deity, took the punishment of the cross, the terrible weight of the sins of humanity, took the wrath of the Father in our place, though he was completely innocent. That's how much you are loved. The one who spoke the universe into existence did not revile when he was reviled. He took it, so that you might live, so that you could have hope, so that you would know that there's a God who, though he knows everything about you, has never given up on you. Do you know him? Have you been born again to that living hope? Have you experienced what it means to be born again of the Holy Spirit? Would you keep your head and heart bowed? If, you, if you've not met Christ, if you don't know that love and that purpose, if you've been running roughshod and your life's a mess. Or maybe things are in order to everyone else, but inside you feel empty. He wants to come and live in you. He wants you to be reestablished, reconnected with the God who made you. He wants to restore fellowship and forgive your sin and heal you. But you must say yes. You must invite him in. So something like this. Right now, don't let this moment pass you by. Lord Jesus, please come into my life. Pray it if it's you. Thank you that you came to this world to save me. Thank you that you love me so much that you took the punishment. Not only were you beaten, but you were crucified. Thank you that you did that for me. I believe you died on that cross for my sin. Pray it if it's you. I believe that you defeated death that so scares and frightens me, Lord. I put my trust in you. If you've been a prodigal and you've been running from God, maybe something very similar. I, I recommit my life to you, Lord. And if you're on the other side and maybe you've been someone who's been discipling others and maybe you're a bit poured out, maybe you're a bit frustrated, keep fighting the good fight. Keep pouring into people's lives. We're all broken at one level or another, but don't give up if you have someone that you've been discipling or loving through difficulty. Just keep doing it by God's grace. Father, we thank you so much that you are so faithful through thick and thin, ups and downs, things that we can't even sometimes fathom or explain. You are faithful, and we look to the cross, to the resurrection, and to a second coming of Jesus when all of this stuff will be made right. I pray for this fellowship. I pray for all of us that you'll keep us strong. You'll keep us uh, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that 
Not one thing we do for you is ever in vain. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.